Turn in the Word of God tonight to Deuteronomy chapter number 27. Deuteronomy chapter number 27. If you have hated this not a series of sermons, then I have good news for you. And that's that uh, this will be the very last one. Amen. And uh, we have preached through. And I guess now I can call it a series since we're at number seven. Amen. And unless the Lord just strikes me dead, which he'd have plenty of reason to do, uh, then we will finish number seven this evening. Ten times in the book of Deuteronomy, you'll find the phrase, take heed. And uh, we preach through almost all of those. There's one that we have not taken notice of, just didn't feel liberty to do so. But nine of them we have taken notice of. And we've done that in the form of six sermons on a single one. And then one of the sermons, we looked at three of them in, in one sermon. And so tonight I want you to notice one more occasion of this phrase, take heed. Deuteronomy chapter number 27. Let's begin reading in verse number one. Deuteronomy chapter 27. Verse number one, the Bible says, And Moses with the elders of Israel commanded the people, saying, Keep all the commandments which I command you this day. And it shall be on the day when ye shall pass over Jordan unto the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, that thou shalt set thee up great stones and plaster them with plaster. And thou shalt write upon them all the words of this law when thou art passed over, that thou mayest go in unto the land which is the Lord, which the Lord thy God giveth thee, a land that floweth with milk and honey, as the Lord God of thy fathers has promised thee. Therefore it shall be when ye shall, when ye be gone over Jordan, that ye shall set up these stones which I command you this day in Mount Ebal. And thou shalt plaster them with plaster, and there shalt thou build an altar unto the Lord thy God, an altar of stones. Thou shalt not lift up any iron tool upon them. Thou shalt build the altar of the Lord thy God of whole stones. Thou shalt offer burnt offerings thereon unto the Lord thy God. Thou shalt offer peace offerings and shalt eat there and rejoice before the Lord thy God. Thou shalt write upon the stones all the words of this law very plainly. Moses and the priests, the Levites, spake unto all Israel, saying, Take heed and hearken, O Israel, this day thou art become the people of the Lord thy God. Thou shalt therefore obey the voice of the Lord thy God and do his commandments and his statutes, which I command thee this day. And Moses charged the people the same day, saying, These shall stand upon Mount Gerizim to bless the people when ye are come over Jordan, Simeon and Levi and Judah and Issachar and Joseph and Benjamin. And these shall stand upon Mount Ebal to curse Reuben, Gad and Asher and Zebulun, Dan and Naphtali. And the Levites shall speak and say unto all the men of Israel with a loud voice, Cursed be the man that maketh any graven or molten image, an abomination unto the Lord, the work of the hands of the craftsmen, and putteth it in a secret place. And all the people shall answer and say, Amen. We'll stop our reading there and pray. Father, we love you and thank you for the word of God. Thank you for this opportunity to gather in this place with folks that love the Bible, to preach the Bible, Lord, to allow you to work and deal in our hearts and our minds. Now, as we draw our focus and attention to your word tonight, Lord, help us to have open hearts to the truth of it. We know that we can sit, we can listen to preaching, we can have preaching thrown at us, but if we're not willing to receive the truth of the word of God, it'll, it'll make none effect in our lives. So give us a right listening spirit, and may we magnify you in all that we do. We love you, Lord, and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. As we've said all along, the phrase, take heed, has three distinct implications to it. When you're telling someone to take heed, there's three things you want people to do. Number one, you might want them to give attendance to a matter. In other words, you're asking them to make sure that they don't neglect 
this area. You might tell someone to take heed that you mow your yard. Take heed that you pay your taxes. Take heed that you check your oil in your car. But you're telling someone, give attendance to this. Don't neglect this. Make sure that you see to this. Number two, you could be asking someone to give reverence to a matter. And particularly the phrase take heed, when understood as a caution, is given in this context and with this connotation. You might tell someone, say, take heed. There are uh, slippery places on that pathway. Take heed. There are loose rocks on that pathway. You might tell someone to take heed that uh, there's a fallen limb in the way. Oftentimes, whenever you're driving down the road, uh, someone just sort of bumps those high beams on their car. They're telling you to take heed that there's something that you're headed towards that could be a danger to you. So often you're telling them to give reverence to a matter, to be careful about something. And then the phrase take heed could have the connotation of giving diligence to a matter. So you're not just telling someone to do it, but you're telling them to do it carefully. You're telling them to do it with thought and with uh, care and with deafness and with devotion. In other words, you're telling someone don't just do it, do it well, do it right. And so throughout the book of Deuteronomy, over and over and over again, God has warned His people to take heed in some things. Now, I'm not going to go through and preach a whole introduction here, but let me just say, you know what this tells us? It tells us that God's people ought to be prudent people. We ought to be careful people. Uh, you've heard the phrase, fools rush in. Let me tell you, God doesn't call any of us to foolishness. We ought to be willing to take the time. If there's anything in your life that you can't pray about because you're scared to, you've already got the answer to your question. If you're scared to ask God what the answer would be because you know what the answer would be, chances are you don't even have to pray. You ought to just obey. Very often we will rush into things because we are seeking a certain outcome. Maybe we're trying to hold our nerve, our confidence in a sunny disposition and a hopeful outcome when we know that's unlikely. God's people are not to be that way. We're to be prayerful and we're to be prudent in everything that we do. And so over and over again, God has warned His people here to be cautious, to be diligent, to give attendance to these things. Now, what are some of the areas that he's wanted us to take heed in? Well, we've sort of walked through some of them. Uh, he's been, uh, they have already been warned to take heed in the matter, number one, of secular relationships. We're all going to have relationships in this world that we live in, friendships and business partnerships and things of that sort. We need to be mindful uh, that when we enter into that relationship with someone that doesn't know the Lord, uh, we need to be mindful of the responsibilities that places on us and the dangers that that provides in front of us. He's told them to take heed in the matter of steadfastly remembering how quick we are to forget all that the Lord's done for us. In the matter of straying religiously, allowing other things to rob our devotion of the Lord Jesus Christ. Of sacrificing recklessly. He says take heed that you offer not your burnt offerings in any place. In other words, don't just worship anywhere. You better worship in God's place and in God's way. I believe, hey listen, how silly would it be to believe that God has an opinion about so many things in our life, but He don't have an opinion about where we go to church. Of course He does. Of course He does. And, and God warns them they are to sacrifice in the place where He's put His name and that He's chosen for them. Then we uh, talked about taking heed in the matter of being snared by the residue. In other words, Moses warns them after they've gone into the land, after they've conquered, after these pagan gods have been done away with, 
that the memory of those gods will still live loudly in the people that dwell there in the land. And if they're not careful, they will snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. They will allow in that moment when they have enjoyed victory in the Lord, they will allow themselves to be ensnared by the memory of those pagan gods. Last week we preached a little bit on the matter of taking heed in sin's removal. And it's given to us in, in, in this description that, that we are to give heed, listen, to the instructions in the Word of God concerning the matter of leprosy, how leprosy was dealt with in Bible days. And leprosy, of course, is a picture of sin. But tonight we find our take heed down in verse number 9. Now I want you to notice it with me. The Bible says, And Moses and the priests, the Levites, spake unto all Israel, saying, Take heed, take heed to what? And hearken, O Israel, this day thou art become the people of the Lord thy God. If we were to assign this to some matter uh, in the definition of the phrase take heed, it would be this, to give reverence and to give diligence to a particular matter. He's saying this, uh, that we need to take heed in the matter of having a sense of our responsibility to the Lord. We've said this before, and I'll say it again tonight. The moment you got born again, you cease to belong to yourself. Now, in, in a sense, even before you got born again, you didn't belong to you. You were a child of the devil. But certainly any, any claim, feigned uh, projection of, of autonomy that we may claim to have in our lives in relation to God is a futile and foolish facade. When you got born again, you got bought out. You don't belong to you anymore. And you, as the person of God, we as the people of the Lord thy God, have certain responsibilities that are placed upon us. We could maybe describe it this way, remembering who we are in the Lord and what that demands of us. A Christian ought to act a certain way. You ought to be able to look and, and tell by a person's proclaimed testimony of being a Christian, you ought to be able to deduce some things from their life. Uh, one of the things that's interesting to me, and me and Brother Taylor were talking about this today, going through the different, uh, you know, new mover addresses. And we normally average in our new mover ministry, he can, he can dial in on the exact number, but something probably in the neighborhood of 150, 175 houses or so a month. He said for the month of November, there were 450 new movers into the six zip codes that we look at. That was just in the month of November. And it's been interesting. A lot of people are moving to the Knoxville area. And, uh, you know, we, we praise the Lord. We rejoice in that. Don't bring your politics from crazy places, but we rejoice in it. Amen? Now, most of the people moving here from them places is moving to get away from the politics of them crazy places. And uh, But people, you know, moving to, to this area. And, uh, I, you know, I, it's always interesting to me when people move to this area, particularly if they're from the northeast or if they're from the far west, something like that. Independent Baptists have a sort of of uniformity in most places other than where you're sitting. There's most places in the country. I mean, you go up to the New England area, if a sign says Independent Baptist, that means a certain thing. You can go in there, you know the music's going to be a certain way, the dress is going to be a certain way, preaching's going to be a certain way, statement of faith's going to be in a certain way. And it's always amusing to me when folks move to this area and they start visiting around to see the utter wide-eyed bewilderment on their face when they've been moving around. Because down here in, in East Tennessee, man, it, it, just because it says independent Baptist, that don't mean nothing. You could walk into anything and it'd be labeled independent Baptist down in the southeast. I've got reasons and opinions as to why I think that is. But suffice it to say, oftentimes uh, I've known them to get 
you know, gun shy. I remember talking to a family years ago that uh, they had moved to Myrtle Beach. Now, the only thing worse when you're looking for uniformity in churches, the only thing worse than moving to the southeast is moving to a tourist town. Because you don't have a clue what it's going to be in a tourist town. And this family decided they wanted to move to Myrtle Beach. And they, they lived there for a year or two. They finally moved back because they couldn't find a church to go to. And uh, they, they, But they said that when they, their family would go visiting around places, it was a large family, and they said that there were a time or two where they were they were walking into church, and all of a sudden the whole family just kind of bowed up and bumped into each other. And the dad, who was at the back, realized what happened. It was that the kids who were at the front, they got in the sanctuary first. They got in there and saw how crazy it was, and they started backing up. Mom and dad are still coming on through like everything's going to be normal, and all of a sudden they're just piled up right there in the floor because the kids had got there first and had seen it. And they described how, how frustrating it was because you'd go into a place and it'd have all the right things on the sign, but then when you go through the door, want nothing right on the inside. And let me say how bewildering it must be to a lost and dying world to see all the right things in our life on the outside. But then when they dig a little deeper, they find all the wrong things on the inside. I guess I'm saying this. We ought to act, your parents ever say this to you? Act like somebody? We ought to act like somebody. We're the people of God. That ought to matter. We have a responsibility to the Lord. And so this warning is given to take heed in the matter of having a sense of our responsibility. When we look at this passage, there are three chief portions to our text. And we could maybe say it this way. As God's people, we are defined by three great things in our life. These are the three things. Number one, we are defined by the pillar of stone. The pillar of stone. And it speaks to our wisdom. Number two, we are defined by the place of sacrifice. We could say it this way, that the first is the pillar, the second is the altar. There was to be an altar there, and that speaks of our worship. And number three, we are defined by the path of submission. Our walk ought to be different than the world around us. So what does this tell us about our life and the way that we ought to be living? Number one, we ought to be pillar, the people that are these of this pillar of stone. You say, preacher, what do you mean by that? Well, look back at verse number one. The Bible says this, And Moses, with the elders of Israel, commanded the people, saying, Keep all the commandments which I command you this day. And it shall be on the day when ye shall pass over Jordan, unto the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, that thou shalt set thee up great stones, and plaster them with plaster. And thou shalt write upon them all the words of this law when thou art passed over, that thou mayest go in unto the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, a land that floweth with milk and honey, as the Lord God of thy fathers hath promised thee. So God instructs the people of Israel. He says, the moment you cross over Jordan, you need to build a large pillar, a large monument. And then I want you to take and plaster it over, give it a smooth surface, and then write in that surface all of the commandments of the Word of God so that everybody that passes by, they can see that the people that have come this way are people of the book. I tell you, as God's people, we ought to be people of the book. The thing that ought to define our life should not be our allegiance to personality, It should not be our allegiance to pragmatism. It should not be our allegiance to popularity and cultural pressure. The thing that should define us is that we're people of the book. That we have a pillar of stone upon which the Word of God is written, erected in our hearts in tribute and testimony to His wisdom, His goodness and His grace, and that come what may, this book is going to define who we are. 
Notice three things about this. Number one, I want you to notice the placement of them. The Bible says that it was on the day that they would pass over Jordan that they were to do this thing. Uh, in other words, at the very entrance into the promised land, once they had crossed over and situated such that anybody that entered into or out of their land by way of the Jordan River would have to take notice of these great large monuments that had been made. In other words, we could say this, God wanted them to be prominent in Israel's national life. Can I tell you the Word of God ought to be prominent in our life? Now, there ain't a one of us that doesn't have half a dozen Bibles sitting somewhere in our house. We've got so many. We, it, it, there, there's, most Christians more, own more Bible than they'll ever read. They've got more copies of the Word of God than they would ever read through if they read them distinctly and separately one time each. Most people have uh, so many Bibles, and I'm right there with you. I ain't fussing about having a bunch of Bibles. I'm just pointing out that we're a Bible-rich people. We've got a lot of Bibles in our home, but I wonder how many of them are prominent in our home. Now, I don't mean that we've taken them and nailed them to the front door. I don't mean that we've taken them and sat them out on a coffee table. But I mean in our life. I wonder when people look at our life how much of the Word of God they see in the way that we're living. Would they look at your life and say, well, I can find the choices that this person makes. I can find them in the Bible. I can find that they pray over their decisions. I can find that church is a priority to them. I can find that they share the gospel with people. I can find that they always are speaking well of their God and testifying of the goodness and grace of their God. I can find that the choices they make to not do as I do, they don't tell the same dirty jokes. They don't uh, talk the same way. They don't go to the same places. And the reason for that is because of what their Bible says. I wonder how many of us, the most of the Bible we own is just those dirty copies that we have sitting somewhere on a bookshelf. The reality is this. The Word of God, though it is present in all of our lives, I wonder how prominent it is in our life. God's desire is that the Word of God be so prominent in your life that you couldn't climb over it or get past it because of where it's at. He wanted everybody that walked into the land of Israel to know this is a land of the book. And it ought to be when people walk into our lives that they cannot help but have to step over the inspired truth of the Word of God to get to us. That they can see the Word of God, every page of it and every choice that we make, such that they might, if they're not familiar with it, begin to ask questions like, why do you do the things you do? Why are you different than I am? Why do you go the places you go? Why don't you go some of the places I go? And they begin to ask questions because they can see it. I promise you this, every stranger that ever walked past those monuments probably stopped and looked at it and says, I wonder what that is. And one of the things we love about taking road trips out west is there's all kinds of weird monuments. You'll be driving down the interstate and you'll see a sign. It'll say, uh, world's biggest ball of yarn. And I'll look over at Leah and say, wonder how big it is. And she'll say, I don't know. Let me look at the map. And we'll say, you know, it's only two hours out of the way. I mean, when are we ever, when are we ever going to be by here again, you know? And uh, you know, everything's dinosaurs out there. You'll look, there's a billboard that says, there, there's a 40-foot dinosaur. I said, well, the boys are going to have to see that. And so we'll drive 30 minutes out of the way, then go 10 minutes down the road, and there's there's a bigger dinosaur, honey. Did you see this? That one's 40 foot. This one's 60 foot. And it's all about roadside attractions, all about getting people to pull over. You know why? Because they got something to sell you. Now, listen, I ain't going to be crass to say it in a crass way. We ain't trying to sell nobody nothing. We're trying to give them something. But I will say this. Part of the purpose in the roadside attraction of the Christian's testimony is to get people to pull over and say, hey, who are these people and what makes them so different? 
When we was up there in Wall, South Dakota, if you've never heard the story of the Wall Drug Store and how it came into being, uh, Wall, uh, Mr. Wall was a man that, that uh, lived in, he had moved to South Dakota. He was a pharmacist and he had moved there, bought a little drug store. It had always struggled because don't nobody want to go to Wall, South Dakota. There was nothing there. It was dry and dusty and barren and miserable. Uh, but they were building a new road because they were trying to finish the Mount Rushmore Monument. And uh, while uh, they were building that road, there was an idea that struck his wife. She said, you know, when people are traveling down the road, uh, what's the one thing that they want more than anything? Driving, driving out over them high plains, it's dusty and everything. And they decided that what people would want more than anything was a nice cold drink of water. So they came up with the idea that they would go and they'd have hundreds of signs made and they'd put them out on the interstate telling people they'd come to Wall Drug Store and get a free ice-cold glass of ice water. And they went out one day and began to put signs up and about halfway through the day they came back home and, and uh, whenever uh, Mr. Wall got back, his wife who uh, had a young child was there at the drug store. Whenever he got back, she was running wide open with pitchers of water trying to fill up people's cups of water. They had already been overrun. They went from getting ready to shut their doors to having to hire eight people by the next summer just to walk around and dispense ice water. Now, why did they do that? Because they knew if they could get them there with the ice water, they could keep them there with the things that they sold. I'm saying this, man, this thing of the Christian testimony, we're not, we're no kind of traveling salesman. We're not trying to trick nobody. We ain't trying to sell nothing to nobody. We got something to give away, not to trade away or sell away. But I am saying that it's, it's by the design of God that our life being distinct and unique would draw people to wonder and to look and to be curious after what happened in our life. We are the burning bush of the book of Exodus that causes the traveler to turn aside and see this great sight. So I see the placement of them. Then notice what verse 3 says. It says, Thou shalt write them upon them all the words of this law when thou art passed over that thou mayest go in unto the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, a land that floweth with milk and honey, as the Lord God of thy fathers hath promised thee. Therefore it shall be, when ye be gone over Jordan, that ye shall set up these stones, which I command you this day, in Mount Ebal, and thou shalt plaster them with plaster. Now, why does the word of God command that these be placed upon stones? Could they not have carved it out on a wooden sign? Well, yes, of course they could have. Uh, could they not have uh, maybe painted it out on a wooden sign? Yes, I'm sure they could have. But God commanded that it was to be upon stones that they were made. It was plastered to give them a smooth writing surface. But God wanted to denote here the permanence of the Word of God. Uh, that it would never change. That it was as unshakable, unmalleable as the surface of hard stone. Can I remind you that the Word of God is an unchanging entity? Men are trying to change it all the time. The trouble is, it's settled in heaven. So they can change their copies down here, but they can't change what God's got wrote down in glory. And then beyond that, God's promised that He would preserve His Word. And so God guards it jealously. And isn't it amazing? All the different, I mean, society's constantly changing. But this old King James Bible just keeps sticking around, don't it? Isn't that amazing? I mean, listen, I, they can't, I, the, the, the next bestseller on the New York Times is going to be outdated six months from now. And six years from now, it'll have been revised and reprinted and given six different editions. But still, you can go into any place that sells books in this country and you can find a good old King James Bible. It's almost like God is watching over it, isn't it? I'm saying this. Hey, the Word of God has a permanence to it. And it should in our life, too. We should be mindful that the Word of God is unchanging. So why would we be so changing in our behavior? So he points to the permanence of them. And then notice what it says in verse number 8. He says, Thou shalt write upon the stones all the words of this law very plainly. 
And Moses and the priests, the Levites, spake unto all Israel, saying, Take heed and hearken, O Israel. This day thou art become the people of the Lord thy God. Thou shalt therefore obey the voice of the Lord thy God and do His commandments and His statutes, which I command thee this day. I want you to notice the performance of them. It wasn't enough to just have a monument erected on the other side of Jordan. It wasn't going to change anyone's life, them simply passing by and reading it. What changed a man's life was when he performed the commandments that were written thereon. Now let me go ahead and switch gears here. You've, you've heard me preaching about having it in a prominent place in our life, and we should. But can I say this? It don't end there. It's not enough to revere the Word of God. We've got to respond to the Word of God. Uh, there's a great many people that don't mind having a reverence for the Word of God. And we're living in a godless time in our nation. We're living in a time when men don't have respect for the Word of God. But for a lot of years, mankind and society, particularly here in the West, was stuck adrift between these two concepts. There was still a baseline fundamental reverence for the concept of God's Word, but men didn't practice it. And we're in the shape that we're in today because we had one, maybe two generations of people who said they believed the Bible, but never obeyed it. You know, that's how we get to where we're at today. It's how Europe got there. It's how uh, we got there. It's how Great Britain got there. Is people that would do lip service to the Word of God. And they would gladly walk by and point to the monuments and say, Oh, look, look at our heritage. Look at our history. Look at our pedigree. But meanwhile, they never let the Word of God stand that tall in their hearts and in their lives. And I would say that in your life, it's not enough to own a Bible. It's not even enough to read a Bible. You've got to obey the Bible if you want to be a people of the book. So the first thing is this pillar of stone. It speaks to our wisdom. Where does our wisdom come from? It comes from the Word of God. Then I would say number two, the people of God are defined by the place of sacrifice. Look with me at verse number five. The Lord says, There shalt thou build an altar unto the Lord thy God, an altar of stones. Thou shalt not lift up any iron tool upon them. Thou shalt build the altar of the Lord thy God of whole stones. Thou shalt offer burnt offerings thereon unto the Lord thy God. Thou shalt offer peace offerings and shalt eat there and rejoice before the Lord thy God. So the second great thing, there were to be people with a pillar in their life, but number two, they were to be a people with an altar in their life. God says this, I want you to practically and meaningfully serve and worship me in your day-to-day -day life. Let me say as the people of God, ours ought not be a theoretic religion. Ours ought not to be an academic religion. We've been teaching, or we have for one week, these epistles of John. And uh, one, of the, one of the issues, in fact, the main issue that John is dealing with in those epistles is the problem of Gnosticism in the early New Testament church. Now, Gnosticism has not gone away. Gnosticism is a nebulous thing. It's, a, it's, a, it's sort of a system or philosophy of viewing religious thought. And so it still exists today. You won't find necessarily Gnostic meetings or Gnostic churches, but you'll find Gnostic ideals common in almost every major denomination here in the West. It's present there. The same concepts are there. And that's how it was even in Bible days. Oftentimes you wouldn't necessarily have a, a group or a movement of Gnostics, but you'd have a teacher and he would sort of uh, vomit out uh, some poisonous ideas and men would begin to adopt them and integrate them in with their body of, of thought. But what Gnosticism was, was a speculative form, a form of speculative religious philosophy and thought. 
And the design behind it was to cause men to reduce their relationship with God to mere speculative opinion and thought. They didn't want men praying to God. They didn't want men serving God. They didn't want men loving God. They wanted men sitting around and pontificating on God. They wanted Him thinking about Him. They just didn't ever want anyone meeting Him. You say, preacher, that don't exist today. You ain't been to any major university. And I ain't talking, I ain't talking about the secular ones. I'm talking about the seminaries. I'm talking about the places where they're training up preachers. Have the exact same venom and the exact same poison, man. There's only hey, hey. One time, I'm just going to go ahead and say this. One time in the Bible, there's a school of the prophets. When there is, uh, there's death in the pot, and when everybody's eating out of the same pot, they all eat of the same death. I, I, let me say this: We ought to have this as our source of uh, of faith and instruction. I'm not saying there's no place for uh, instruction in the matter of ministry in in any way. I'm not saying that's never the will of God. But I am saying this, that uh, God has the ability to reveal Himself to His people through His Word. Amen? And so we could say this, that God desires and has designed that we have a real, meaningful, practicable relationship with Him. I want you to notice three things here. Notice first off the commandment of the altar. The altar was not optional. It was mandatory. Verse 5, There shalt thou build an altar unto the Lord thy God. In other words, the altar wasn't just for the super spiritual in Israel. The altar wasn't simply there for those that wanted to take their love of God to a next level. The altar was commanded for every single Israelite to participate in. Can I remind you that this thing of serving and worshiping the Lord, of living for Him and doing the work of God, that's not optional in our life. And your salvation has never been predicated on it. But certainly you being pleasing to God in the way that you live uh, does take into consideration whether you're serving Him or you're not. If God's given you legs to serve Him with, if He's given you arms to serve Him with, a mouth to testify with, eyes to see with, if He's given you the opportunity to do something for Him, and you pass that up because you have something more important, what does that suggest in our opinion about God? We would have to ask ourselves this question, is that how God's people ought to be? I see the commandment of the altar. It wasn't optional, it was commanded. Then notice number two, the construction of the altar. It says this, Thou shalt not lift up any iron tool upon them. Thou shalt build the altar of the Lord thy God of whole stones. Now, this is very instructive. There's much we could say about ministry and serving the Lord and, and, and diligence and, and striving to make things fit and to make things function. But can I just make one simple passing note? God said, I don't want you lifting up any iron tool to these stones because you ought to understand that I've made the stones the way they ought to be in the first place. In other words, he did not want to be a, have an altar that was crafted by human ingenuity, but he wanted to have an altar that was constructed by divine pattern. I tell you, God has an opinion about how he's served. He has an opinion about how he's worshipped. And we ought to desire in our lives not to try to bend and bow and buckle the, the matter of worship and service to fit our lives, but rather say, now Lord, you make my life fit for your service. Uh, far too often we're only willing to serve God if we can pencil it in. That's not how the people of God would be. I mean, let me just ask you this simple question. In your mind, and I'm sure you can do it, use a little sanctified imagination. If you thought of, of somebody that was sold out to Jesus, what would they look like? What would they be like? And does your life match that? Would they be someone that balked at serving the Lord? Would they be someone that had to be browbeat to read their Bible? Would they be a person that had to be dragged to the prayer closet through turmoil and tribulation and trial? 
Or would they be someone that craved the presence of God, that loved the Word of God, that desired to serve God? Think in your mind what a sold-out Christian would look like. And then just understand this, every Christian is sold out. We've all been bought out. And we all ought to be that way. I see the construction of the altar. We ought to serve Him the way He wants. And then I see the concept of the altar. So why is the altar present in our life? And I would note this, that none of the things that are described are there to benefit God, though undoubtedly He's pleased in all of them. But they are all there to benefit the worshiper. Can I say, you serve God because it pleases the Lord, but it's always to your benefit to serve God. So what was the altar for? Well, notice number one, it was for pardon. It says, Thou shalt offer burnt offerings thereon unto the Lord thy God. Now, why do we worship? Why do we maintain close relationships with the Lord? So that we don't allow sin to get an edge in our lives. Listen, I I promise you this. You quit on church, quit on God, it won't be long. Sin will follow. I I know that there's this, uh, you know, figment of people's imagination, the idea of of the moral atheist. That's like the idea of the noble savage. It may work in books, but it ain't never had no footing in reality. This idea that there's the moral atheist. Oh, he may be moral by society's standards, but it's not society's heaven that we want to go to. It's God's heaven. So the question is, in the eyes of God, is he moral? The reality is that this figment of your imagination, the, the moral atheist, is kind of like the super spiritual backslidden Christian. And we've all met some of them that quit on church. Somebody hurt their feelings. Somebody said something to them wrong. Somebody looked at them cross-eyed. Something happened in their life. They quit on church, but they're doing just fine. It's always amazing. Their life is falling apart. Sin has taken root. They're miserable. They're bitter. But somehow they're doing just fine. Could it be they're trying to convince themselves that they're doing just fine? The fact is, our relationship to the Lord and our service of Him, part of the reason for it is it does not allow sin to get a, to get a foothold in our life. The burnt offering was to deal with sin in the life of the believer. And likewise, the altar is there to deal with sin in the life of the believer. Number two, not only is it for pardon, it's for peace offerings. Verse 7 says, Thou shalt offer peace offerings. Now, what was a peace offering? A peace offering was a sacrifice of gratitude. It was a form of worship. The peace offering was the worshiper coming to God and rejoicing in the peace that had been provided through the means of the burnt offering. It was him standing whole before God and saying, because of the work that's been carried out, I can rejoice in the fact that I have standing with the Lord. You say, preacher, what's this thing of going to church and serving the Lord all about? It's all about saying thank you to the Lord. It's not about him saying thank you to us. It's about us saying thank you to Him. We ain't trying to earn nothing. Man, we're thanking Him for what He's already done. Not only that, it's for provision. It says He shall eat there. In other words, they could gain strength at the altar. And as people of the altar, as people of service to the Lord, we need to recognize we gain strength from what we're doing here tonight. I thought about it. It just, you know how a thought will come to you, will almost sort of just strike your mind and, and smite your heart. I thought about it this morning, how desperately we need the house of God. Uh, could you imagine? And you've probably gone through seasons in your life, maybe through illness or maybe through your own choice, where you weren't in the house of God. And you remember how weak and anemic that you felt during those times. Hey, listen, I don't know if you're aware of it, but we need church far more than church needs us. We desperately need the house of God. It's for provision and then it's for praise. What are they going to do? They're going to rejoice before the Lord thy God. In other words, it ought to be a joyful thing. It ought to be a happy thing. One of the things I've always appreciated about this church is how much people enjoy church. We should enjoy church. It ought to be a place, man, not not of, of somberness and not of misery and not of downcastness, but it ought to be a place that we enjoy coming to because we have the joy of the Lord in our heart. 
So we are people uh, that are, are a people of the altar, the place of sacrifice. Our worship defines who we are. Then notice verse 11 with me, and we'll be done tonight. The Bible says this, And Moses charged the people the same day, saying, These shall stand upon Mount Gerizim to bless the people. When ye are come over Jordan, Simeon and Levi and Judah and Issachar and Joseph and Benjamin, and these shall stand upon Mount Ebal to curse Reuben, Gad, and Asher, Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali. And the Levites shall speak and say unto all the men of Israel with a loud voice, Cursed be the man that maketh any graven or molten image. We'll stop our reading there. We'll take note of the rest of it here in a moment. God gives this instruction to the people of Israel that when they finally conquer the land, they're to carry out this most symbolic pageantry uh, for the edification of the Israelites. They're literally supposed to carry out this ceremony, and it is deeply significant to them as a nation. They're to place part of the nation up on Mount Gerizim, another part on Mount Ebal. And by the way, these are not two close areas. These are geographically distant in the land of Israel, but they're to place people on them. And the idea is that these two mountains are supposed to answer one to the other, showing Israel as a nation to be constantly living in the valley of decision. In other words, the people of God It's not that the world is not in the valley of decision. They just don't see any other decision than the decision that they make. But when you got born again, all of a sudden, you remember what the Lord said, if the Son hath made you free, you're free indeed. When you when you was in the bondage of sin, in the gall and bond of iniquity, you didn't know there was any way to live other than the way you was living. But you got saved, and now you truly live in the valley of decision. And you have this witness on either side, knowing if I disobey the Word of God, it brings curse into my life. If I obey the Word of God, it brings blessing into my life. And there you stand, constantly, daily, having to make decisions of what your life is to be. God's desire for Israel was not that they choose the curse, but that they choose the blessing. And so, in our lives, we are defined by this path of submission, our walk that God has set before us. What would you say about a person if you were trying to describe someone that's sold out to the Lord? You'd probably say this. If you were to say it with clear eyes and clear thoughts, you'd probably say, you know, they're human just like me. And they make choices just like me. But because they love the Lord, they make the right choice in their life. I wonder what choices you and I are making. Notice three things here. Number one, a charge was delivered. Moses charged the people the same day. Now, what is a charge? A charge is a rallying cry. It is a way of reminding the people that action must be taken. It is a challenge that is set before. You're trying to spur someone to certain activity. Can I just charge you tonight in saying this? You're going to have to make a decision about who you're going to serve. Far too long we have claimed to be standing idle in the valley of decision when the reality is through our indecision we have made a decision. We're going to have to decide whether we're going to serve God or whether you're not. I don't know if you know this, you're getting older. Not me, but you are. Eh, come on. <laughs> hey, I, I just, my preacher used to say, you throw a rock in a pack of dogs, the one that yelps is the one that got hit. Amen, that's all I'm saying. We don't have to make a decision. Our indecision is a decision. We're letting days pass by that we're not serving God. How, how much time do you think you've got? I, and I don't mean that. I'm not, I'm not joking. I, I don't mean it in an ugly way when I say that. I mean, how much time do we think we've got to serve the Lord? I tell you, we've got one less day today than we had yesterday. And we can claim that we have all the time in the world. There's been a lot of folks got old with that mind frame. 
before they ever did anything for the Lord. It just happened one day. They woke up one day and they said, where did all that time go? The fact is, we ought to be charged to this life of devotion to the Lord. We ought to get busy serving God. We don't know when Jesus is coming back. It could be any moment. And surely it's sooner than it was the last time I preached to you. So we better get busy. The charge was delivered. Then notice number two, a choice was defined. Now the choice wasn't choice A, choice B, choice C, choice D, choice 7, choice H, choice question mark. The choice was twofold. You're either going to obey Him or you're going to disobey Him. On the side of disobedience lies the curse. And on the side of obedience lies the blessing. We have just such a binary decision in our life today. We're either going to serve Him or we're not. Now, wouldn't you think people sold out to God would serve Him? And we can say, now, preacher, I'm every, I'm everything I ought to be. I'm where I need to be. We, we, we don't say I'm everything I ought to be. We're not as bold as that. We'll just say, I'm all right. I'm all right with the Lord. I'm okay. I, I'm where I need to be, I believe. The reality is, if we're not serving Him, how can we say that that's where we need to be? I see this choice was defined, and the choice was you're either going to serve Him or not. Say, preacher, how do I know if I'm right with the Lord? I'm not serving Him. Then you know. You may not be able to serve Him the way everyone can or or others can. and I'm aware of that. I'm not naive to that fact. There ain't one of us that can't be doing something for the Lord. So the choice is we're either going to serve Him or we're not. And then notice finally there is a chastening that was described. Now I only read just a short portion of it. But you could in your own time go through and read the rest of the chapter and the chapter after and the chapter after and the chapter after that. This story continues on. But it begins in verse number 14 when it says, The Levites shall speak and say unto all the men of Israel with a loud voice, Cursed be the man that maketh any graven or molten image an abomination unto the Lord, the work of the hands of the craftsmen, and putteth it in a secret place, and all the people shall answer and say, Amen. Now this is the first of a series of curses that are described. And I thought about this, this curse. You know, a curse in the Bible is not like a curse in modern culture, nomenclature. It's not not the idea of somebody's put a hex on you. It's not what a curse is in the Bible. Curse in the Bible means something that is the natural result of a life lived contrary to the principles and truth of the Word of God. It's not that, oh, somebody's done done put a hex on you, somebody's put a curse on you, now now your life is snake-bit. That's not what, there is no such thing as that. I'll tell you what's very real. When you live contrary to the Word of God, you know how he said it in the book of Leviticus? said that uh, if we walk contrary to Him, here's what He'll do. He'll walk contrary to us. Uh, if we live in disobedience, hey, disobedience to God's Word has consequences. Uh, you, we can call it a curse. The Bible calls it a curse. Let me tell you something. You get, you get rebellious on God, it's going to feel like a curse. All of a sudden, now listen, let me go ahead and tell you. that I say this as a guy that's had to fix more broken stuff around my house in the past two weeks than I even own. So I'm not saying every time something breaks at the house, it's because you're backslid on God. But I am saying this, you get backslid on God, man, all of a sudden you'll have a lot less month than you've got bills. Everything will tear up. Hey, how many of you ever heard this? Hey, God's going to get his tithes. You might pay it at the church house, or you might pay it at the mechanic, or you might pay it at the doctor, but you're going to pay them tithes. All these are communicating the same concept, which is this. When you live in disobedience to the Word of God, it brings heartache and sorrow into your life. And it can feel like you're cursed. It can feel like everything's going sideways. By the same token, there's been times when God in His favor has smiled upon my life, and and it was like despite my great stupidity, God just kept turning things to roses. He just kept blessing me in ways that I did not deserve. 
Now, what's the result of that? Well, a life lived in disobedience to God's Word will always bring heartache and sorrow. A life lived in obedience to the Word of God, while not necessarily meaning you'll have no sorrow, not necessarily meaning there'll be no problems in your life, it certainly equips you to be able to bear those problems. You remember what the Lord said. He said, take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Give me that burden you're carrying, and I'll give you the burden that I'm carrying. Hey, it's good to be a child of God. Don't you imagine that Jesus, had He not been bearing our burdens, would have had a very light burden? Well, don't you know that's what He did on Calvary is He took your burden so that you could bear His burden. And I'm saying in your life, hey, listen, if we, if we live in disobedience to God, that's going to bring chastening. It's going to bring heartache. It's going to bring sorrow. We don't have to live that way. And I would say this, as the people of God, we ought to strive to not live that way. How can we say that we're living like a child of God if we're living in disobedience? If we're walking contrary to the Word of God? If we're not serving the Lord to the greatest of our ability and at the best of every opportunity? How, are, how could we say that we're living like a child of God? And let me tell you, in this wicked world we're living in, it is very easy. Between the world, the flesh, and the devil, it's very easy to quit living up to the high and holy calling on our life. That's why Paul exhorted the church at Ephesus to walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you're called. Because so many times we're not walking worthily. We're not living in a way that is worthy of God's grace and calling in our life. Not that we could ever earn it, but hey, He's given it to us. We ought to try to live up to it. But we could say it this way, act like somebody. Act like somebody that's been born again. Act like somebody that's a child of God. Act like somebody that heaven's your home. Act like somebody that hope is your strength. Act like somebody that God lives inside of. Because if you're born again, that's exactly who you are. Let's bow together this evening as a musician comes to play. I want to give you the opportunity to meet with the Lord in the altar. There might be some area of your life that He's spoken on, spoken to something that he's dealt with tonight, why don't you meet him down in this altar and talk with him about that? I promise you, there ain't nothing to be scared of about this altar. You come meet the Lord here. Let him have his will and his way in your heart and in your mind. Father, pray that you'd bless now this invitation that your people would respond to you. I love you, Lord. I ask it in Christ's name.